Chapter Thirty of the Two Destinies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Two Destinies by Wilkie Collins. Chapter Thirty. The Prospect Darkens three days after my mother and i had established ourselves at tarkey i received mrs van brandt's answer to my letter after the opening sentences informing me that van brandt had been set at liberty under circumstances painfully suggestive to the writer of some unacknowledged sacrifice on my part the letter proceeded in these terms the new employment which mr van brandt is to undertake secures to us the comforts if not the luxuries of life for the first time since my troubles began i have the prospect before me of a peaceful existence among a foreign people from whom all that is false in my position may be concealed not for my sake but for the sake of my child to more than this to the happiness which some women enjoy i must not i dare not aspire we leave england for the continent early to-morrow morning shall i tell you in what part of europe my new residence is to be no you might write to me again and i might write back the one poor return i can make to the good angel of my life is to help him forget me what right have i to cling to my usurped place in your regard the time will come when you will give your heart to a woman who is worthier of it than i am let me drop out of your life except as an occasional remembrance when you sometimes think of the days that have gone forever i shall not be without some consolation on my side when i looked back at the past i have been a better woman since i met you live as long as i may i shall always remember that yes the influence that you have had over me has been from the first to last an influence for good allowing that i have done wrong in my position to love you and worse even than that to own it still the love has been innocent and the effort to control it has been an honest effort at least but apart from this my heart tells me that i am the better for the sympathy which has united us i may confess to you what i have never yet acknowledged now that we are so widely parted and so little likely to meet again whenever i have given myself up unrestrainedly to my own better impulses they have always seemed to lead me to you whenever my mind has been most truly at peace and i have been able to pray with a pure and a penitent heart i have felt if there was some unseen tie that was drawing us nearer and nearer together and strange to say this has always happened just as my dreams of you have always come to me when i have been separated from van brandt at such times thinking or dreaming it has always appeared to me that i knew you far more familiarly than i know you when we meet face to face 
is there really such a thing i wonder as a former state of existence and were we once constant companions in some other sphere thousands of years since these are idle guesses let it be enough for me to remember that i have been the better for knowing you without inquiring how or why farewell my beloved benefactor my only friend the child sends you a kiss and the mother signs herself your grateful and affectionate m van brandt when i first read those lines they once more recalled to my memory very strangely as i then thought the predictions of dame dermody in the days of my boyhood here were the foretold sympathies which were spiritually to reunite me to mary realized by a stranger whom i had met by chance in the later years of my life thinking in this direction did i advance no further not a step further not a suspicion of the truth presented itself to my mind even yet was my own dullness of apprehension to blame for this would another man in my position have discovered what i had failed to see i look back along the chain of events which runs through my narrative and i ask myself where are the possibilities to be found in my case or in the case of any other man of identifying the child who was mary dermody and with the woman who was mrs van brandt was there anything left in our faces when we met again by the scotch river to remind us of our younger selves we had developed in the interval from boy and girl to man and woman no outward traces were discernible in us of the george and mary of other days disguised from each other by our faces we were also disguised by our names her mock marriage had changed her surname my stepfather's will had changed mine her christian name was the commonest of all names in women and mine was almost as far from being remarkable among the names of men turning next to the various occasions on which we had met we had seen each enough of each other to drift into recognition on either side in the ordinary course of talk we had met but four times in all once on the bridge once again in edinburgh twice more in london on each of these occasions the absorbing anxieties and interests at the passing moment had filled her mind and mine had inspired her words and mine when had the events which had brought us together left us with leisure enough and tranquillity enough to look back idly through our lives and calmly to compare the recollections of our youth never from first to last the course of events had borne us further and further away from any results that could have been led to even a suspicion of the truth she could only believe when she wrote to me on leaving england and i could only believe when i read her letter that we had first met at the river and that our divergent destinies had ended in parting us forever 
reading her farewell letter in later days by the light of my matured experience i note how remarkably dame dermody's faith in the puritical tie that united us as kindred spirits was justified by the result it was only when my unknown mary was parted from van brandt in other words it was only when she was a pure spirit that she felt my influence over her as a refining influence on her life and that the apparition of her communicated with me in the visible and perfect likeness of herself on my side when was it that i dreamed of her as in as in scotland or felt the mysterious warning of her presence in my waking moments as in shetland always at the time when my heart opened most tenderly toward her and toward others when my mind was most free from the bitter doubts the self-seeking aspirations which degrade the divinity within us then and only then my sympathy with her was the perfect sympathy which holds its fidelity unassailable by the chances and changes the delusions and temptations of mortal life i am writing prematurely of the time when the light came to me my narrative must return to the time when i was still walking in darkness absorbed in watching over the closing days of my mother's life i found in the performance of this sacred duty my only consolation under the overthrow of my last hope of marriage with mrs van brandt by slow degrees my mother felt the reviving influences of a quiet life and a soft pure air the improvement in her health could as i but too well knew be only an improvement for a time still it was a relief to see her free from pain and innocently happy in the presence of her son accepting those hours of the day and night which were dedicated to repose i was never far away from her to this day i remember with a tenderness which attaches to no other memories of mine the books that i read to her the sunny corner on the seashore where i sat with her the games of cards that we played together the little trivial gossip that amused her when she was strong enough for nothing else these are my imperishable relics these are the deeds of my life that i shall love best to look back on when the all-enfolding shadows of death are closing round me in the hours when i was alone my thoughts occupying themselves most among the persons and events of the past wandered back many and many a time to shetland and miss dunross my haunting doubt as to what was the black veil that had really hidden from me was no longer accompanied by a feeling of horror when it now recurred to my mind the more vividly my later remembrances of miss dunross were associated with the idea of inutterable bodily affliction the higher the noble nature of the woman seemed to rise in my esteem for the first time since i had left shetland 
the temptation now came to me to disregard the injunction with her that which her father had laid upon me at parting when i thought again of the stolen kiss in the dead of night when i recalled the appearance of the frail white hand waving to me through the dark curtains its last farewell and when there mingled with those memories the later remembrance of what my mother had suspected and of what mrs van brandt had seen in her dream the longing in me to find a means of assuring miss dunross that she still held her place apart in my memory and my heart was more than mortal fortitude could resist i was pledged in honour not to return to shetland and not to write how to communicate with her secretly in some other way was the constant question in my mind as the days went on a hint to enlighten me was all i wanted and as the irony of circumstances ordered it my mother was the person who gave me the hint we still spoke at intervals of mrs van brandt watching me on those occasions when we were in the company of friends and acquaintances at tarkey my mother plainly discerned that no other woman whatever her attractions might be could take the place in my heart of the woman whom i had lost seeing but one prospect of happiness for me she steadily refused to abandon the idea of my marriage when a woman has owned that she loves a man so my mother used to express her opinion it is that man's fault no matter what the obstacles might be if he fails to make her his wife reverting to this view in various ways she pressed it on my consideration one day in these words there is one drawback george to my happiness in being here with you i am an obstacle in the way of your communicating with mrs van brandt uh, you forget i said that she has left england without telling me where to find her if you were free from the encumbrance of your mother my dear you would easily find her even as things are you might surely write to her don't mistake my motives george if i had any hope of you forgetting her if i saw you only moderately attracted by one or other of the charming women whom we both know here i should say let us never speak again or think again of mrs van brandt but my dear your heart is closed to every woman but one be happy in your own way and let me see it before i die the wretch to whom that poor creature is sacrificing her life will sooner or later ill-treat her or desert her and then she must turn to you don't let her think that you are resigned to the loss of her the more resolutely you set your scruples at defiance the more she will love you and admire you in secret women are like that send her a letter and follow it with a little present 
you talked of taking me to the studio of the young artist here who left his card the other day am i told that he paints admirable portraits and miniatures why not send your portrait to mrs van brandt here was the idea which i had been vainly in search quite superfluous as a method of pleading my cause with mrs van brandt the portrait offered the best of all means of communicating with miss denross without absolutely violating the engagement which her father had pledged me in this way without writing a word without even sending a message i might tell her how gratefully she was remembered and i might remind her of me tenderly in the bitterest moments of her sad and solitary life the same day i went to the artist privately the sittings were afterward continued during the hours while my mother was resting in her room until the portrait was completed i caused it to be enclosed in a plain gold locket with a chain attached and i forwarded my gift in the first instance to the one person i could trust to assist me in arranging for the conveyance of it to its destination this was the old friend alluded to in those pages as sir james who had taken me with him to shetland in the government yacht i had no reason in writing the necessary explanations to express myself to sir james with any reserve on the voyage back we had more than once spoken together confidentially of miss dunross sir james had heard her sad story from the resident medical man at lurwick who had been an old companion of his in their college days requesting him to confide my gift in this gen to this gentleman i did not hesitate to acknowledge the doubt that oppressed me in relation to the mystery of the black veil it was of course impossible to decide whether the doctor would be able to relieve that doubt i could only venture to suggest that the question might be guardedly put in making the customary inquiries after the health of miss dunross in those days of slow communication i had to wait not for days but for weeks before i could expect to receive sir james's answer his letter only reached me after an unusually long delay for this or for some other reason that i cannot divine i felt so strongly the foreboding of bad news that i abstained from breaking the seal in my mother's presence i waited until i could retire to my own room and then i opened the letter my presentiment had not deceived me sir james's reply contained these words only the letter enclosed tells its own sad story without help from me i cannot grieve for her but i can feel sorry for you the letter thus described was addressed to sir james by the doctor at lurwick i copy it without comment in these words the late stormy weather has delayed the vessel by means of which we communicate with the mainland i have received your letter to-day with it there has been 
arrived a little box containing a gold locket and chain being the present which you ask me to convey privately to miss dunross from a friend of yours whose name you are not at liberty to mention in transmitting these instructions you have innocently placed me in a position of extreme difficulty the poor lady for whom the gift is intended is, the ne is near the end of her life a life of such complicated and terrible suffering that death comes in her case literally as a mercy and a deliverance under these melancholy circumstances i am i think not to blame if i hesitate to give her the locket in secret not knowing with what associations this keepsake may be connected or if what serious agitation it may not possibly be the cause in this state of doubt i have ventured on opening the locket and my hesitation is naturally increased i am quite ignorant of the remembrances which my unhappy patient may connect with the portrait i don't know whether it will give her pleasure or pain to receive it in her last moments on earth i can only decide to take it with me when i see her to-morrow and to let circumstances determine whether i shall risk letting her see it or not our post to the south only leaves this place in three days time i can keep my letter open and let you know the result i have seen her and i have just returned to my own house my distress of mind is great but i will do my best to write intelligibly and fully of what has happened her sinking energies when i first saw her this morning had rallied for the moment the nurse informed me that she had slept during the early hours of the new day previously to this there were symptoms of fever accompanied by some slight delirium the words that escaped her in this condition appear to have related mainly to an absent person whom she spoke of by the name of george her one anxiety i am told was to see george again before she died hearing this it struck me as barely possible that the portrait in the locket might be the portrait of the absent person i sent her nurse out of the room and took her hand in mine trusting partly to her own admirable courage and strength of mind and partly to the confidence which i knew she placed in me as an old friend and adviser i adverted to the words which had fallen from her in her feverish state and then i said you know that any secret of yours is safe in my keeping tell me do you expect to receive any little keepsake or memorial from george it was a risk to run the black veil which she always wears was over her face i had nothing to tell me of the effect which i was producing on her except the changing temperature or the partial movement of her hand as it lay in mine just under a silk coverlet of the bed she said nothing at first her hand turned suddenly from cold to hot and closed with a quick pressure on mine her breathing became oppressed when she spoke it was with difficulty she told me nothing she only put a question is he here she asked i said nobody is here but myself is 
there a letter i said no she was silent for a while her hand turned cold the grasp of her fingers loosened she spoke again be quick doctor whatever it is give it to me before i die i risked the experiment i opened the locket and i put it into her hand as so as far as i could discover she refrained from looking at it at first she said turn me in the bed with my face to the wall i obeyed her with her back turned toward me she lifted her veil and then as i suppose she looked at the portrait a long low cry not of sorrow or pain a cry of rapture and delight burst from her i heard her kiss the portrait accustomed as i am in my profession to piteous sights and sounds i never remember so completely losing my self-control as i lost it at that moment i was obliged to turn away to the window hardly a minute could have passed before i was back at the bedside in that brief interval she had changed her voice had sunk again it was so weak i could only hear what she was said by leaning over her and placing my ear close to her lips put it round my neck she whispered i clasped the chain of the locket round her neck she tried to lift her hand to it but her strength failed her help me to hide it she said i guided her hand she hid the locket in her bosom under the white dressing-gown which she wore that day the oppression in her breathing increased i raised her on the pillow the pillow was not high enough i rested her head on my shoulder i partially opened her veil she was able to speak once more feeling a momentary relief promise she said that no stranger's hand shall touch me promise to bury me as i am now i gave her my promise her failing breath quickened she was just able to articulate the next word cover my face again i drew the veil over her face she rested a while in silence suddenly the sound of her laboring respiration ceased she started she raised her head from my shoulder are you in pain i asked oh, i am in heaven she answered her head dropped back on my breast as she spoke in that last outburst of joy her last breath had passed the moment of her supreme happiness and the moment of her death were one the mercy of god had found her at last i return to my letter before the post goes out i have taken the necessary measures for the performance of my promise she will be buried with a portrait hidden in her bosom with the black veil over her face 
no nobler creature ever breathed the breath of life tell the stranger who sent her his portrait that her last moments were joyful moments through his remembrance of her as expressed by his gift i observe a passage in your letter to which i have not yet replied you ask me if there was any more serious reason for the persistent hiding of her face under the veil than the reason which she was accustomed to give to the persons about her it is true that she suffered under a morbid sensitiveness to the action of light it is also true that this was not the only result or the worst result of the malady that affected her she had another reason for keeping her face hidden a reason known to only two persons to the doctor who lives in the village near her father's house and to myself we are both pledged never to divulge to any living creature what our eyes alone have seen we have kept our terrible secret even from her father and we shall carry it with us to our graves i have no more to say on this melancholy subject to the person whose interest you write when he thinks of her now let him think of the beauty which no bodily affliction can profane the beauty of the freed spirit eternally happy in its union with the angels of god i may add before i close my letter that the poor old father will not be left in cheerless solitude at the lake house he will pass the remainder of his days under my roof with my good wife to take care of him and my children to remind him of the brighter side of life so the letter ended i put it away and went out the solitude of my room forewarned me unendurably of the coming solitude in my own life my interests in this busy world were now narrowed to one object to the care of my mother's failing health of the two women whose hearts had once beaten in loving sympathy with mine one lay in her grave and the other was lost to me in a foreign land on the drive by the sea i met my mother in her little pony chaise moving slowly under the mild wintry sunshine i dismissed the man who was in attendance on her and i walked by the side of the chaise with the reins in my hand we chatted quietly on trivial subjects i closed my eyes to the dreary future that was before me and tried in the intervals of heartache to live resignedly in the passing hour end of chapter 30 recording by susan smith nash tulsa oklahoma